X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, July 7th. Remember to subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Do subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars, please, on your favorite podcast platform. Already subscribed. You can share it with a friend. Want to find it on your favorite platform? Go to Linktree backslash The Local Portland. Today, back in the day, July 7th, 1862, the Land Grant Act endowed state colleges with federal land. Oregon State University, a beneficiary of the land grant, was founded just six years after that. OSU is also a sea grant, a space grant, and a sun grant institution, making it only one of four U.S. schools to obtain all four designations. The other ones, University of Hawaii at Manoa, Cornell University, and Penn State University. This federal and state subsidized school allowed its first black student in 1926. Two years after that, today, back in the day, July 7th, 1928, sliced bread sold for the first time using a machine invented by Otto Frederick Roeder. Described as the biggest step forward in baking since bread was wrapped and the greatest thing since, well, let's say democracy and the quest for equality. Today on The Local, your quick six news, including breaking news from Universal Preschool Now's effort to put an initiative on the ballot. We'll also have a continued look at Portland protests with DJ Ambush and a recent interview with Dr. Rosa Colquitt, chair of the Black Caucus, the Democratic Party of Oregon, and co-chair of the Oregon delegation to the Democratic National Convention in August, a convention like none other in history. First up, it is today's Quick 6 local rundown. Breaking news, Universal Preschool Now, the acronym UPNOW, turned in 30,000 signatures to get on the ballot yesterday. 22,686 signatures are required to get on the ballot. Now the campaign needs to see about their validity rate to see if they qualify for the ballot. they got to make sure out of those 30,000 signatures turned in, at least 22,686 are in fact valid. The campaign applauded their volunteers for doing what they worried might be impossible. For example, the ballot measure to take redistricting away from the Democratic legislature has filed a lawsuit arguing that gathering sufficient signatures in the middle of a pandemic is, well, pretty close to impossible under the imposed timelines. That said, the drug decriminalization measures did it statewide, and now the universal preschool now measure has done it locally. The Up Now proposal would impose a tax on the top 5% of income earners in Multnomah County. That tax would be 3.9%. It would apply to individuals earning $165,000 or more or couples earning over $190,000. Reminder that the Multnomah County government has also been discussing a potentially slimmed-down proposal. Up Now argues of more robust packages needed to cover all students and pay sufficient wages to child care workers. The campaign argues that Oregon has the nation's fourth-highest child care costs and that every dollar spent on universal preschool returns over 9 bucks in increased graduation rates, wages, and lowered incarceration costs. The evidence is so strong. This is the single best thing we can do to raise high school graduation rates. And you raise high school graduation rates and you raise people's incomes, you lower unemployment, you lower incarceration, you lower all kinds of things that keep people marginalized going on into the future. And we're going to have a new district attorney in just about three and a half weeks. Mike Schmidt will begin his work as Multnomah County District Attorney on August 1st. In May, Multnomah County voters elected Mike Schmidt by a wide margin to serve as the county's next district attorney. And he was supposed to start in January. That's when current DA Rod Underhill ends his term. However, last month, remember, Underhill resigned early, announcing his last day would be July 31st, just a few weeks from now. 
Underhill's early retirement leaves the position vacant, meaning the government had to appoint a successor. So Monday morning, Governor Kate Brown announced that she would be appointing Schmidt to start work in August. Underhill told his staff in June he was resigning because it would be, and I am quoting, short-sighted and unfair to the office and our community, end quote, to begin overhauling the county's justice system just to have a change in leadership six months later. Schmidt is the executive director of the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission, was previously deputy attorney in Multnomah County. He ran his campaign on a platform of criminal justice reform. And Schmidt has said the protests in Portland largely reflect the philosophy he will have as the county's top prosecutor. We still have the same goals. How do we create more public safety? How do we reduce gun violence in our community? But we're having a conversation now about how the resources we're spending up to this point Is that the best way to do it, or should we reallocate those resources? And your daily dose of coronavirus data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 168 new confirmed or presumptive coronavirus diagnoses on Monday. At least it wasn't a fifth consecutive day of 300-plus. The Oregon Health Authority has said about 75% of recent COVID-19 cases are among people younger than 50, an increasing trend as the virus continues to spread. Meanwhile, an inmate of the federal prison in Sheridan, Oregon, has tested positive. It's the first known case of the disease at the facility. It's about 30 miles northwest of Salem. Inmates have been on lockdown since March 31st with little time out of their cells. Some inmates have been confined to their cells for 23 hours a day, according to lawyers. At times, inmates have been locked up for more than 72 hours straight. Some are triple bunked in two-person cells. No new deaths were reported. 215 people are confirmed to have died from the coronavirus. There have been over 130,000 confirmed deaths around the country. A little math on masks. According to COVID19.healthdata.org, Oregon is now projected to have almost 500 deaths, 493.68 deaths. Of course, that's based on modeling projections. If we have universal masks, only 334.57 deaths. Basically, the modeling suggests we can save about 150, 160 human lives if we wear masks, plus save lots more sickness. The current projection in Washington state is a little over 2,050 deaths, and universal masks would save about 400 lives, again, plus all the sickness. The Portland City Council is considering giving bailout money to people rather than entertainment venues. It's a significant debate. Over a dozen private local entertainment venues are asking the City Council for a portion of the CARES Act money the city got earlier this year. The venues initially asked for $1.5 million a month. That request was initially rejected. They've made some reductions to their requests. Commissioner Chloe Udaly oversees City Hall's arts portfolio. Udaly has been inclined to provide some funding to the venues, but Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has other ideas. She says the money should go directly to the people who used to work at the venues. For background and some reminder, the city got $114 million in federal CARES Act money, and there's less than $10 million that remains for discretionary spending for COVID-19 needs. City commissioners now weigh a choice. Distribute cash payments to people in need, what they call flexible household assistance, or bail out the private and public venues. And speaking of money, Portland Parks and Rec is considering two possible tax measures for the November ballot. In June, the Bureau spent some money on a poll asking voters' preference between two options. The first, here goes, a $700 million capital bond to, and I'm quoting, 
fix playgrounds, trails, and improve park and recreation facilities, including safety and accessibility improvements. And the second, and I'm quoting, a $44 million per year, five-year temporary operating levy to prevent ongoing reductions to Portland Parks and Rec services and programs, end quote. The bowling found 83% of the folks were satisfied with the park services, but only 58% were satisfied with the way the agency spends the money. Voters responded more positively to the operating levy, 63% saying yes, 57% said they would support the capital bond. A reminder that many services and programs normally available during the summer can't be offered due to the pandemic. And because the Bureau charges user fees for much of its summer services, the cancellations worsen the Bureau's funds overall. The City Council will take up the issue of whether to refer the levy to voters on July 22nd at 2 p.m. That means you can testify. Mayor Ted Wheeler plans to bring a discussion of funding options to the City Council next month. And Vancouver, Washington's first sanctioned homeless camp will remain open through the end of July. The Columbian reporting that the temporary tent encampment located at Living Hope Church, which opened in May, has a little bit longer at least. It was supposed to end at the end of June. Now it's got another month. The site averages 25 to 27 campers a night. And in the next couple weeks, the church says it's going to reevaluate the campsite and figure out next steps. And some good news. Shout out to Shruthi Ananth, an incoming senior at Westview High School in Portland. Shruthi Ananth is an incoming senior at Westview High School. Westview High School, by the way, does have an address in Portland. As part of the FEMA Youth Preparedness Council, Ananth has raised $50,000 nationwide for COVID-19 relief funds. Ananth first got interested in community outreach and preparedness when she heard about the Cascadia Subduction Zone. The Cascadia Subduction Zone is what is risking a major earthquake here in the Northwest. Ananth remembers feeling fear about the possible earthquake, but later realized she could help. She took that same approach towards the COVID-19 crisis. She spent three or four weeks to raise 50 grand. How did she do it? I'm quoting, well, we did a lot of safety fairs and camps, including online. On Facebook and Instagram, we did online certifications. We worked with Red Cross, got people certified for CPR training and first aid certification via live streams. They would then send recordings back, and through that, we would fundraise. Anant says the money is going to go to veterans organizations and various homeless shelters. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Up next, we have a clip from Ambush's latest interview from the front lines of local protests. He returned to the same group as before, but this time had the privilege of sitting down with a member that has done his fair share of protests, not just here, but in his native land. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. This is DJ Ambush. You are joining us for another volume of the Revolutionary Mixtape. Um, in volume one, side A, I sat down with a group of protesters here in Portland, giving us an update from the front lines. I'm here with that group again, speaking with a different member. Um, and I really hope this is as, as insightful as the first one was. I know it will be for me, definitely. And I would challenge everyone to kind of do away with some of the narrative that's been put out by mainstream media and just listen to this with a clear slate. Take this information, you know, as it is, and then, you know, reanalyze what you've been hearing about what's been happening down at the protests. First things first, uh, how are you today? Um, it's been a minute. <laughs> it has been a minute. I'm sure there's been many, many updates since the last time I was able to speak with you guys. How are you? Um, you know, I'm doing good. The, um, 
the uh, being out there every single day, exposed to the different things that are going on, but also actively participating in reshaping the narrative is quite uh, energy intensive. Uh, but feeling good, feeling excellent, especially uh, uh, over the past couple days, past week, uh, one of the main things we've seen the group do is, uh, successfully do, is bring a sense of community to what's happening in the sense of reminding people why we're there. And I think we're going to talk about that more with some of your questions, but mm -hmm. uh, it's been uplifting. It's not that every night is a successful night in the terms of like people being on the same page, but it's happening more often and we're feeling good about that, people out there. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned bringing a sense of community. Uh, since the last time we spoke, there have been um, some reoccurring stories of just what seemed like not necessarily disorganization, but some of the organizations not necessarily being on the same page. Then you actually have, you know, people that are purposely coming through to disrupt and, and be provocateurs. And, and there's always that struggle with, is this about the movement or is this about me as a personality? Like there's been so many different things that have been playing out. And I feel as though while these have always been constant issues in any protest movement, there are it, the, these elements, these particular elements are more exposed or we're having more time to dialogue about these because of the length of the protest now. Mm -hmm. Like this has been going on for a minute. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in some ways it's exciting because you guys aren't being thwarted. You know, uh, spirits are still high. Mm -hmm. We're seeing progress happen, mm -hmm. you know, globally. Um, so could you speak to some of the initial instances or, or, or challenges and, and how that's changed? What steps you guys have taken to, you know, create the sense of community? Absolutely. I think initially <clears throat> what you have was a kind of what you, you know, it, it boiled over. People were angry. People people had a, in the initial days, it was very clear that people needed to essentially, up, you know, rise up and, 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 and anger and wanting, wanting people, people's voice to be heard was fueling a kind of almost, you know, momentum. But because of the specific history of systemic racism and violence towards black bodies and the multiple level, the multiple kind of like iterations of gentrification that like this city has experienced, for instance, a lot of people didn't, you know, the, putting the words to it is difficult. As a historian who I just spoke to recently said that Portland's black communities and Portland's communities of color are traumatized from this, like what she said was, this is round 15 of gentrification. So I think putting words to it are very difficult. Um, but over time, like you were saying, you know, it's been a month, I think day 30 for some people who are counting. Um, what occurred was then people started to kind of lose sight or maybe they never had the words to explain why they were out there. And so in order to like, what, what uh, specifically the group that I'm with over there, the group that I see over there is uh, reminding and centering uh, black women's voices in this struggle as a guiding light to why we are here. And I think that is the reason that we have seen cohesiveness start to come back because the message is clear. If you listen to the voices of black women who have always been uh, 
kind of at the center of any sort of abolitionist or uh, uh, abolitionist movement or a movement of liberation. So centering those voices as a method to say, y'all, this is why we're here. Remember that has been doing a great service to the movement um, and being able to bring people back onto some sort of clarity as to what we're doing. What's uh, what's the pushback been like? Has, has, I'm sure that conversation hasn't been friction free. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are people um, within communities of color and outside of communities of color that may not quite understand why, understand the importance of black women's voices being the mm -hmm. center of this mm -hmm. and their message being the center of this. Yeah, it's very difficult because uh, you're battling misogyny within um, communities, even your own community, within communities of color, within the black community, but in the white community. So... There's a lot of pushback because initially people are kind of angered or why why doesn't my voice matter on this issue? Right. And kind of being humbled to realize, well, here's the reason why, uh, especially like the, the, the amount of degrees of separation occur from the trauma of, you know, the specific issue. I mean, remembering that this is an issue first and foremost of an overwhelming cry to say that the violence towards black bodies, the system that perpetuates it has to stop. But you have to remember who are the ones who are, who are the leaders of the community who experience the greatest pain from this issue? Right. Who are right. the greatest risk? Yes, for instance, everyone knows George Floyd now, but let's remember that the greatest violence and risk, the people who are the most risk in this country are black women. So whereas it has, and indigenous women. Yeah. And so whenever you, you know, to remember that, yes, we have these instances that make the mainstream news, mm. but the continuous bottom level, like what's normal in this country is an, un, is an immensely high level of trauma and violence towards black women. And historically, black women have been the kind of leaders, uh, thinkers in a large presence behind yes. these movements. Yeah. So it's important to center them in this movement because this is no different. This is the head or this is the culmination of all the pain that we've experienced before. So their voices are extremely important. And the pushback is real because you have, um, you have people who are there to support, but their methods of support they believe are more important. And if you know, and, and, and so, um, it's really difficult to explain and, and also, what I've been seeing is an immense love and willing to educate by the black women leaders out there. Um, and it, you know, it's grueling. It's, it's, it's tiring because yeah. you're fighting, you're fighting for the cause and then you're fighting to just reeducate within yourselves and within your communities. I want to thank you for your time, man. This was amazing. I'm looking forward to checking back in with you guys, you know, regularly, at least every other week and, Absolutely. and making sure we get this information out. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you, so you very much. Next up is my interview with the chair of the Black Caucus for the Democratic Party of Oregon, Dr. Rosa Colquitt. The role of the caucus, reflections on the special session, and insights into how we might experience August's Democratic National Convention. Here's more with Dr. Rosa Colquitt. Dr. Colquitt, good morning. Good morning. Is it Emily? It is. You've got yeah, good morning, Emily. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing just great. Well, <laughs> Happy to be with you. Excellent. We are glad that you are with us. Tell us, what is the role of the Black Caucus in the arm of the Democratic Party of Oregon? Well, thank you very much for that question. 
the Black Caucus represents the political interests and views of black Democrats in the state of Oregon. We operate on the fundamental beliefs that black lives matter, and we recognize that racism is a threat to public health. In a historically white state and living in one of the largest predominantly white urban cities in the U.S., the Black Caucus leaders and members bring the voice, the much-needed voice of daily living experiences to assist the Democratic Party in how to conduct itself in building policies and practices that recognize both explicit and implicit bias and structural racism. In fulfilling this capacity, the overriding goal of the Black Caucus is to dismantle the organizational and group norms that foster white supremacy and racial exclusionary practices. One other point, uh, as an extension of the Democratic Party of Oregon, it is the position of the Black Caucus to work for a present and future society that respects the dignity of every black Oregonian. This includes growing Oregon-based, black-owned businesses and local economies and protecting the land, our natural environment. Uh, And by way of a quick announcement, in anticipation of election 2020, the caucus looks forward to implementing a September Black Leadership Roundtable and candidate forum in partnership with several other civil and human rights organizations. Mm, fantastic. How long has the Black Caucus been in existence? Uh, I, as, as far back as I know, mm-hmm. which would date back to about 2008, I have been an active uh, volunteer in the Black Caucus, and since about 2010, uh, a volunteer in a leadership role. So we've been we've been plugging it for a long time. And do you feel like you're making progress with the mission and goals that you just shared with us? Indeed, we do feel that uh, mm-hmm. we've made some progress uh, in terms of having an impact on the activities of the Democratic Party and in terms of supporting and electing uh, black officials, but yet we also know that that we have a tremendous amount of work ahead and that what work we've done in the past to build on, we have even more as we go forward into 2020 and beyond. Mm. So you're, you're supporting individual candidates who might be interested in running? We support... Yes, we do support individual candidates, but one of the things we don't necessarily do is we um, we don't do a lot of endorsing, but we certainly okay. support candidates by way of being on the ground, well, virtually now, uh, <laughs> to support their work and to support their candidacy. We support them financially. The party has a neighborhood leadership program that helps us get into the community to do canvassing. We also support with technical skills and candidate and uh, voter registration information. So in that sense, yes, we are definitely supporting individual candidates. And what are some of the barriers that the Black Caucus has identified that are keeping qualified black leaders from running? 
That uh, that is such a good question. In 2019, the the Black Caucus held. Uh, I mentioned we will be doing the same in 2020, mm-hmm. but we held a leadership roundtable. And one of the main issues that came up in that discussion, uh, obviously one is finances, uh, putting together enough money to run a campaign, uh, being able to pay and support campaign staff, Mm -hmm. and also uh, just being able to uh, work, be a full-time worker or a family member or supporting the family, all of those things sometimes make it difficult to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you, the Black Caucus is also supporting the legislative agenda of the Democratic Party of Oregon? Yes, we do. And how are, what are your reflections on the special session last week? We thought it went well. We, we thought that, the, that for the two days that it was in session, and the specific uh, outline of activities that they wanted to accomplish, we felt it went very well, particularly with moving forward with some of the police reforms. Did those reforms go far enough from your perspective? Probably, <laughs> probably not uh, far mm-hmm. enough, but it's a start and it's progress. Ah, absolutely. Um, and what are your... Um, thoughts about the Democratic National Convention that's coming up in August. You and um, Travis Nelson are now the co-chairs of the Oregon delegation after Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley stepped aside. So you'll be playing a leadership role. What do we know about the the National Convention at this point? Well, we know uh, we know quite a bit at this point. And I'm going to try and not use too many acronyms, not assuming that our listeners know all the the acronyms that we use in our Democratic Party and in our caucuses and in our work groups. But the Democratic National Convention, that would be the, the DNCC, the convention committee announced plans last week to hold a virtual convention that protects public health and engages and unites uh, more Americans than we could possibly uh, pragmatically attend an on-site convention in Wisconsin. And by doing this convention virtually, we're doing so without facing the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. And as convention co-chair, I know I speak for many when I express relief and gratitude to a political party that prioritizes life over adoring, shouting crowds. (laughs) Delegates will be staying home safely while Vice President Biden accepts the Democratic nomination in Milwaukee, but we will be 100% totally engaged in our states and in our counties and in our parties with uh, convention activities. And so during a convention, there are, of course, the things that those of us who aren't there are able to watch on television, the speeches, the rallies. Um, And then there's a lot of behind-the-scenes meetings with with candidates. The Oregon delegation would be meeting. Um, what What does a typical convention look like for those who've never attended? And then we can talk about how that might change this year. That That is a really great question. I uh, wrote, I actually did an essay when I returned home after 2012, Mm -hmm. and 
there are lots and lots of meetings. One of the most exciting for me in terms of of, of acquiring skills and gaining new networks was I had an opportunity to, to meet with a national with a national congressional black caucus, uh, and all of the caucuses meet the uh, Asian American caucus, uh, Islander Pacific Islander caucus. The Stonewall Caucus meets, all of the varying caucuses, Hispanic meet. And so you have this opportunity to understand how the work that we are attempting to do in Oregon is impacted and supported by what happens at a national level. So the, the meetings are just tremendous. The opportunity to hear speakers from every state uh, each night the opportunity to hear the details on the platform that the Democratic Party has developed and will be operating on for the next four years until the next presidential election. And uh, it's busy. It's busy from 6 in the morning until probably close to midnight at night. So it's very busy and exhausting. Uh, There are meetings throughout the day, and it's just... um, If I had to describe it in one word, I would simply say dazzling. Hmm, dazzling. I love that. Yes, I would. So you've found your experiences at the DNC convention inspiring? Absolutely inspiring. And so this year, the assumption will be that just everything will be shifted to online, right? Yes, it will be. But uh, there will still be the same opportunities, the same learning and engagement opportunities And I noticed yesterday when I was reading some of the convention materials, they're coming out daily. There is an opportunity to go online and to to make a short video. I think you have to keep it under two minutes in the data that I read yesterday. But uh, you can make a a two-minute video, and that video, if I make it here in Oregon, it will be shown nationally. And so Mm -hmm. I'm getting to meet folks, and they're getting to meet uh, the delegates and and, uh, the Democrats in Oregon. So there's going to be a lot of interaction and a lot of engagement. Oh, that sounds, that sounds exciting. Are you feeling hopeful and encouraged about the state of the Democratic Party? Yes, I am feeling uh, hopeful about it. But uh, with that, I temper that hope with uh, realistic uh, concerns as well. Mm. The uh, Democratic Party has as I said earlier, has made a lot of progress. Mm. But I also recognize within that progress that there's a lot of work for the party to do with regard to true inclusion of people of color, in particular in particular, true inclusion of black Oregonians. Mm. I, part of it is that the, the population is small, and uh, I'm still working to recruit and bring people in who don't necessarily feel that their voice is always reflected. And so in that respect, we have work to do. And I think uh, having what I describe, I learned this from uh, former New York Congresswoman uh, Shirley, Shirley Chisholm. I think we all learned from her that it's one thing to come to the party to work and to volunteer to learn and to contribute and to engage, but it's it's a different thing to have what um, Congresswoman Chisholm described as a 
seat at the table, a real mm-hmm. voice at the table, where the, my concerns and the concerns of my community and of my family are reflected in the values and the activities and the decision-making of the Democratic Party. So, Mm -hmm. yes, there is progress, but, yes, there is much, much tremendous work ahead. Mm. And what are your thoughts for our listeners who might want to support the Black Caucus in making that happen, helping to ensure that there are more black Oregonians involved in the Democratic Party. How can our listeners support you? Uh, our li- uh, the listeners, I really appreciate <laughs> you giving me an opportunity to answer that question. Mm-hmm. The first thing is uh, engaging with the caucus, understanding what we're trying to accomplish, how and why what the work that we do impacts the lives of every black Oregonian. And one of the most important ways for that to occur is that one has to get involved. Uh, One has to engage. And then, uh, in that sense, you understand the importance, how you can contribute, what you can learn, and the impact not only on the the black uh, community in Oregon, but how what we do and what we accomplish impacts Oregon overall, and there is indeed a great impact. But first things first, we do have to get involved. I strongly encourage that. Not only is it engaging, at moments it's very exciting and gratifying, and we need, we need folks, we need everybody to be involved, and we do want to hear those voices. We want those voices represented and uh, folks are real smart. I genuinely mean that. They have a lot to offer. We will offer a real seat at the table, which means your voice will be heard and your voice does matter. Black lives matter. Mm. Dr. Rosa Colquitt, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Emily. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks to Ambush and Dr. Colquitt for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please do subscribe. Please do give a five-star review. Share it with a friend. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.